Continuing through our series in Leviticus, we come this morning to Leviticus chapter 6, verses 8 through 18. Our New Testament complementary passage is John's Revelation, chapter 14, verses 6 through 13. So with your Bibles open to John's Revelation, chapter 14, in honor of God's Word, please stand. John chapter 14, beginning in verse 6, hear God's word. Then I saw another angel flying directly overhead with an eternal gospel to proclaim to those who dwell on earth, to every nation and tribe and language and people. And he said with a loud voice, fear God and give him glory because the hour of his judgment has come and worship him who made heaven and earth, the sea and the springs of water. Another angel, a second, followed saying, fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. She who made all nations drink the wine of the passion of her sexual immorality. And another angel, a third, followed them, saying with a loud voice, If anyone worships the beast in its image and receives a mark on his forehead or on his hand, he also will drink the wine of God's wrath poured full strength into the cup of his anger. And he will be tormented with fire and sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever. And they have no rest, day or night, these worshipers of the beast and its image and whoever receives the mark of its name. Here is a call for the endurance of the saints, those who keep the commandments of God and their faith in Jesus. I heard a voice from heaven saying, write this, blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Blessed indeed, says the Spirit, that they may rest from their labors, for their deeds follow them. As far in the reading of God's Word, please turn to Leviticus chapter 6, beginning in verse 8, and continuing in the reading of God's Word. The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Command Aaron and his sons, saying, This is the law of the burnt offering. The burnt offering shall be on the hearth, on the altar, all night until the morning, and the fire of the altar shall be kept burning on it. The priest shall put on his linen garments and put his linen undergarments on his body and he shall take up the ashes to which the fire has reduced, the burnt offering on the altar, and put them beside the altar. Then he shall take off his garments and put on other garments and carry the ashes outside the camp to a clean place. The fire on the altar shall be kept burning on it. It shall not go out. The priest shall burn wood on it every morning and he shall arrange the burnt offering on it and he shall burn on it the fat of the peace offerings. Fire shall be kept burning on the altar continually. It shall not go out. And this is the law of the grain offering. The sons of Aaron shall offer it before the Lord in front of the altar. And one shall take from it a handful of the fine flour of the grain offering and its oil and all the frankincense that is on the grain offering and burn this as its memorial portion on the altar, a pleasing aroma to the Lord. The rest of it, Aaron and his son shall eat. It shall be eaten unleavened in a holy place. In the court of the tent of meeting they shall eat it. It shall not be baked with leaven. I have given it as their portion of my food offerings. It is a thing most holy, like the sin offering and the guilt offering. Every male among the children of Aaron may eat of it, as decreed forever throughout your generations from the the Lord's food offerings. Whatever touches them shall become holy. Thus far in the reading of God's word, let us pray. 
Father, as we have read, we come to the preaching of your word and the hearing of it. We pray that you would speak for your servants. Listen. In Christ's name, amen. Please be seated. So I mentioned at the beginning of the service that I'm fascinated by tapestries. I'm fascinated by the idea that you could put one random blue piece of yarn at one spot and it would create this complex and beautiful picture, design, whatever. Maybe a more simplistic thing, or a more simplistic example would be one of those paint-by-number sets. Uh, if you are the type of person who either used to or still does enjoy paint-by-number sets, at least if you do it the way that I do it, you take all the pieces of paint that are number one, and you color in all the squares that are number one, and then you take all the colors that are number two, and you color in all the little places that are number two, and if you'll notice your painting... As you are coloring in all the ones, and then later all the twos, and then later all the threes, looks like hot garbage. Until suddenly it doesn't. Until suddenly you look at this paint-by-number thing, and you go, wow, I'm an amazing artist. This is really, really good. This ought to be framed and hung on my mantle. The stories of the Old Testament and the stories of Leviticus serve the exact same function. As we read this morning, burnt offerings all night long, and priests changing their clothes and carrying ashes around and grain offering and unleavened bread and all these things that we just read about this morning. I want you to think of them as a thread in a tapestry. As we zero in on the thread, we get a better picture, a better understanding of the greater tapestry. And there are two threads this morning in our passage that arise out of this passage that's in front of you. There are two threads in particular. The first is judgment and redemption. The first thread that we see in our passage this morning is that of judgment and redemption. The second is peace and harmony. Judgment and redemption in verses 8 through 13 Peace and harmony in verses 14 through 16. Now, let's look first at this picture of judgment and redemption. This burnt offering is an eternal flame. It's a continual fire. And so Moses very much, or God through Moses, very much intends for you and me to have this visual image. That's the purpose of all of this all, all of this narrative, all of these explanations, is for us to have this absolute visual image of the altar on which the fire of the burnt offering never goes out. Look at verses 11 and 12 in chapter 6. The fire on the altar is never to go out. 
a continual burning of the sin offering. Those animals are continually placed upon the altar. The altar itself is such a display of God's judgment upon sin that even what it consumes is ceremonially unclean. Did you see when the priest cleans the ashes off the altar? He doesn't merely scrape them off the altar and pitch them over his shoulder. He's to put on clean garments, clean undergarments. He's to take all the ashes off and then he's to change his clothes and put on a completely different set of clothes so that he can pick these ashes up, these these the leftovers of God's wrath, the full cup of God's wrath poured out so that nothing but ash remains. And that ash is ceremonially unclean. That ash is to be taken and dumped outside the camp in a clean place. We've got this visual image, and I want you to picture it, of the, of the altar and of this fire always, constantly burning on the altar. Constant reminder, constant display of hell. A constant display of God's hatred of sin. Remember all these commandments. Everything we've seen all the way back, Exodus chapter 18. All these things that govern your life, that govern your worship, that govern how we treat one another in the, in the covenant community, that govern, govern every aspect of your life, all of it, to violate it brings the fires of hell itself. And for the Israelite camping in the wilderness... In the dark of night, he or she could have woken up and looked out their tent door and seen flickering the wrath of God on sin. The hatred of God for impurity. God's seriousness with which he takes this problem of the separation of man, men, women, boys and girls, humanity, the separation from what He intended in the Garden of Eden, from what He intended for you and me to be. Joyful, happy, walking in His paths, enjoying Him, and enjoying the gifts that He gives us enjoying our relationships with one another, and yet don't they fall apart? Aren't they broken? Parent to child, child to parent, husband to wife, wife to husband. Don't we see the encroaching impact of sin into so many areas personally just magnified culturally? And all night long, That fire, all night long, that statement, I hate sin. Sin cannot exist in my presence. A wicked people cannot be reconciled to me. I must 
pour out the full cup of my wrath upon all of this evil and all of this brokenness and all of this nastiness that comes up from within my own heart, your own heart, God says, it must be annihilated. So we have this eternal flame. Oh, but beloved, that's not all that's on the altar. That's not the only thing sitting on that altar all night long. Because also on that altar, beloved, is a bull. On that altar is a goat. On that altar is a lamb, a pigeon, a turtle dove. A constant reminder to the faithful in Israel. A constant reminder to that one who is burdened by their own sin. A constant reminder to that one who recognizes that they don't live up to God's standard. A constant reminder to you and to me who not only live in brokenness, but live out that brokenness. A constant reminder in all of your snarkiness, to your spouse, in all of your snarkiness, to people around you, in all of your narcissism, in all of your ugliness, in all of that toxic that is not just in you. It's not just in me. But beloved, this is the atmosphere that you and I walk and breathe, is it not? All of that toxic, invisible gas that is all around us, the brokenness, the injustice, the pain, the sorrow, all of that, God holds forth a sacrifice. Eternally, always on that altar, the author of the gospel, right here in ancient Israel, a bunch of tribesmen wandering through the desert, we have here God's hatred of sin and God's provision of a lamb. God's provision of a sacrifice. Both held forth to the faithful in Israel. Both held forth to you. When Moses wrote the Pentateuch, at the end of his life, and the children of Israel had wandered for 40 years in the wilderness, an entire generation. An entire generation had grown up under this system, seeing this altar always lit, seeing that sacrifice always held forth, hearing and participating in these rituals of recognizing my need for a sacrifice, of bringing something that costs me to that altar, to that priest, of having the priest examine it, say, yep, it is, without blemish, and then to sacrifice it. They'd grown up under this. Can you imagine, can you imagine being so dull of hearing, so dull spiritually, that you would grow up seeing the glory cloud of God, seeing the fire by night and the smoke by day, 
seeing that great altar always burning, seeing that sacrifice always there, and you looking at it and going, yeah, I'm bored. Been there, done that. Give me something new. Can you imagine that? Can you imagine being so completely dense? So completely hardened, so completely ugly and bitter and coiled in on yourself that in the presence of this stunning visual display, this stunning aromatic display, you can smell the meat burning all night long. In the, in the, in the face of this thing that assaults our senses, God's hatred of sin and God's offering of a sacrifice that all you have to do is put your hand on the head of it and it will be enough. You will be at pardon. You will be at peace. All you have to do is put your hand on the head of that lamb, of that bull, of that goat. And you respond and go, eh, are we stopping at an ice cream shop in our next thing on the wilderness journey? I mean, are there any, uh, any Disneyland out here in the middle of the wilderness? Because this day after day after day of walking through the sand gets really dull. Moses, can you give me something interesting? I'd like a break. I mean, literally, they do that, don't they? Don't they start yelling about wanting to go back to Egypt and at least we had good food? Yeah, we were enslaved and they killed our children, but the food was awesome. You should have been at the buffet line. <laughs> that, that, that's the insanity. The insanity with which you and I can look at God's mercy, grace, offer of redemption, and walk away. This, this visual image, this thing that was going on in the wilderness, this thing that's going on here in the whole tabernacle and in the moving it through the wilderness. Let's just back up a second here. This is a Pharaoh glory house. Think of all the tombs, all of the Pharaohs, ancient Egypt. They gathered all the gold. They gathered all the silver. They built themselves treasure tombs. And the Holy of Holies, drenched in gold, drenched in silver, at the same moment in time that you have the pharaohs in Egypt and all that, this is a glory house that is being carried through the wilderness, we mentioned last week, by almost 10,000 people dedicated only to the job of carrying the glory house around. 10,000, an army of people moving the glory house of God through the wilderness to the promised land. This is impressive. And how many Israelites fell by the wayside? How many of those warning passages in Hebrews that they saw and it wasn't enough? Beloved, this 
glorious image. This amazing promise that both God will do what is right and the wicked shall not prevail. The sin shall be eradicated. His justice and judgment will come. That simultaneous reality that not only the judge of all the earth will do what is right, but also the judge of all the earth has provided for you and for me. A sacrifice to stand in. A sacrifice to be the bearer of His wrath. So that you and I then, secondly, can have peace and harmony. How often did they become bored? How often did they become distracted? How often did they become forgetful? And how often do you and I do worse? Because the writer of the Hebrews keeps saying repeatedly, we've got the real thing. (laughs) All they had was a picture. All they had was a promise. You and I have the fulfillment of that picture and the reality of that promise. And yet, are we not often so far from where we should be? In the burnt offering, God simultaneously holds forth His glorious truth and promise of judgment and justice and the truth and promise of a substitute. When we see that, then we can come to peace and harmony. And that's what everybody wants, isn't it? I mean, I I don't think you have to be a Christian to want peace and harmony. I, I think this is just kind of what everybody wants. I'm assuming, unless you're like really sick, <laughs> I think normal people want peace and harmony. I think they want peace and harmony in their relationships in the home. I think they want peace and harmony in their relationships with the creation. I think we want peace and harmony. And the problem is that in this great tapestry, God sets forth something that you and I don't necessarily like to hear. And that is this. Forgiveness is the basis of fellowship. When we're talking about your relationship with God, when we're talking about how you are going to enter into that holy place, when we're talking about how you get back into Eden, God says, first you got the burnt offering. (laughs) Then you get the bread. Then the communion then the fellowship, then the harmony, then the public display. Notice that Aaron and his sons eat this in the court. They're standing out there in front of everybody. The whole, all the people, all the worshipers are gathered around, and they see Aaron and his sons saying, we are at fellowship with God. We're at peace with God. We're, we're in harmony with God. They see this continual public display. We looked at Revelation because John takes the exact image of that fire 
this roaring fire. I mean, this is a big fire. This is not a sterno, you know, one of those little burner warmer things that you put underneath tin foil. This is a fire that's big enough to cook a bull. <laughs> this is a big, roaring fire. And John takes that image, not just of the fire, but also of the hatred that it expresses of God against sin, against brokenness, against wickedness, against rebellion. His hatred of that, and he builds his entire message of Revelation chapter 14, verses 6 and following, on that. If you, if you remember, John in Revelation, or if you don't remember, turn over to it. The first thing that John says about this, and so I want to I zero in first off on this fire. Uh, and that's in verses 10 and 11. He will drink the wine of God's wrath, poured full strength into the cup of his anger. He will be tormented with fire and sulfur in the presence of his holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever. They have no rest day or night. These worshipers of the beast in its image and whoever receives the mark of its name. Do you see that eternal flame there? Do you see the eternal vengeance that is behind that flame? Do you see the eternal flame in Leviticus chapter 6 and the eternal vengeance that's behind that flame? John uses the exact image of the altar and its consuming fire. It's consuming flame, as the writer of the Hebrews does in our warning passage that we looked at earlier this morning. He uses that image in order to do this. In order to say, beloved, there are only two categories. There are the people who receive the mark of the beast, and there are the people who receive the mark of the lamb. Those are the two categories. Let me put it in more clear, maybe modern terms. There are only two categories. You are either saved by grace or you need to be saved by grace. That's the only two categories. You're not black, you're not white, you're not male, you're not free, you're not Jew, you're not Gentile. That's the words of Paul. That's Paul's words when he says we are one in Jesus Christ. Because the ultimate decision is as basic as you can get. <laughs> the ultimate choice is as binary as it can possibly get. You're either saved by grace or you need to be saved by grace. That is the only possible division that there is. And John uses this division, this ultimate division, when God says, I will come and I will bring judgment, I will bring justice, do you notice how John introduces it? What's that first angel flying overhead and proclaiming? The eternal gospel. He says that in verse 6. Another angel flying directly overhead with an eternal gospel to proclaim to those who dwell on the earth. This eternal flame in Leviticus chapter 6. This eternal gospel in Revelation chapter 14. And that eternal gospel, we go on to see, is you got two choices. You are either married to Babylon or you're married to the Lamb. Now the question of what is Babylon, 
will occupy theologians till Christ comes again. But I believe that Babylon, when John uses it in his revelation, stands in for everything that would say, find fulfillment, success, identity here, not God. And so Babylon absolutely could be a marriage. Think about that. How many young men and how many young women get into a relationship with someone else for reasons other than what God said that marriage was for? Companionship, procreation, the delivering of a godly seed. How many people get into a marriage for reasons other than that? Now, can God redeem your stupidity? Absolutely. Thankfully, I see it happen all the time. God redeems my stupidity. But even something as beautiful as marriage can be given to us in a completely broken context, in a Babylon context. When your husband or your wife is supposed to fulfill something in you that Jesus can't fulfill. When your children or having children or not having children, is going to fulfill something in you that Jesus can't fulfill in you. When your job, your career, getting that promotion or that recognition is going to fulfill something in you that Jesus cannot fulfill in you. Anything. Anything. That is going to be something that you grab hold of and say, if I could only have this, it would be okay. There's Babylon. You want to know what Babylon is? There it is. You can read the theologians, you can read the commentaries, you can, you can argue till the cows come home. But the bottom line is, Babylon versus the Lamb. And the interesting thing in this, think about, you know, hell. That sounds like a really dark, dark message. It certainly doesn't play well with the uh, focus groups and all that sort of stuff. Shouldn't really emphasize that. Here's another way of looking at the issue of heaven and hell. <clears throat> at the end of your life, when this final statement is made, when your final eternal destiny is proclaimed, here's the deal. You will get exactly what you want. You will get exactly what you want. And I don't mean that in some stupid Hollywood thing of we're going to walk through Elysian fields and all that nonsense, or Gandalf saying the fields of white. That we, I'm talking about you are going to have lived your life saying, God, get out of my space. And so he's going to go, okay. <laughs> Welcome to a space with absolutely no God. No light, no love, no redemption, no grace, no mercy. You wanted it, you got it. On the other hand, those who said, in, in the face of everything, whatever it costs, I am with the Lamb. 
He is my life, my strength, my song. He is my portion. He is all that I am. It is in looking through Him and at Him that I can then engage effectively with other arenas in my life. But it's got to start here. Guess what you get? You get Him. Forever. At the end of the day, you get exactly what you want. That's a frightening thought. It's a frightening thought when I consider how many times I've seen people who genuinely want peace and harmony. I mean, we all do. But we'll choose death and Babylon rather than acknowledge that first principle that there's a fire of God that comes down upon sin. And that the only way that I can be in relationship with God is through that perfect sacrifice that Jesus has made. As John takes up this image, this image of the fire, this image of the of the sacrifice, as he takes up that image, he speaks to you and me right there in verse 12. If you've got your Bibles open to Revelation chapter 14 and verse 12, here's where John says, this is what you and I are called to do right here, right now, today. As we stand between this Babylon idolatry, this Babylon infidelity, and the Lamb. And between the time of that promise that all things are going to be brought right, as we stand here and as we stand here right now, this message is supposed to have an impact on you. And what's the impact? Look at verse 12. He's very clear. This isn't, uh, this isn't rocket science. <laughs> he says, this is a call to endure. And that's one of the weirdest... I, I don't know. It, just, it strikes me as weird. It's not a call of hope. It's not a call of vindication. It's not a call for evangelism. You know, all these things I think would legitimately flow out of that. Here's a call to get out there and win souls for Jesus. Here's what's coming up for him. It's not what it's a call for. It's a call to endure. Because at the end of the day, that was exactly what those Israelites walking through the wilderness were having to do. They were having to put one foot in front of the other. They were having to walk. And it got tired and it got hot and it got sticky and it got unpleasant and there were all kinds of temptations. But what ultimately did they have to do? They had to endure. They had to make it to the next day. And John says, if you and I have this vision, if you and I understand these two great destinies, then you and I 
can endure. And what does that look like in our lives? What does endurance look like in your life? Well, it looks like somebody gets up in the morning and makes a point of starting the day in prayer. That's what enduring is. Staying faithful in the little stuff. I don't think it's a surprise to anybody in this room that I am not a gym rat. I am not somebody who endures when it comes to physical exercise. I may get all up energetic about it on January 1st, but pretty clearly over the course of my life, by May 14th, something has changed between January 1st and May 14th. I don't endure. I've got a lot of gym memberships, or have had, (laughs) but very little endurance. Because it's in the daily grind that endurance becomes the issue. It's in the daily grind of your relationship with God, your relationship within the household, your relationship within the workplace, the way that you engage in all of these Various things that God tells you, you and I are called to do. That's where we endure. And beloved, even as we see this beautiful thread, even as we see this powerful thread that comes out of Leviticus chapter 6, I think it becomes obvious to all of us what John is speaking of in Revelation 14. When he speaks of drinking the cup of the wrath to its full dregs, all of that fire, all of that, that, that literal fire in Leviticus chapter 6 was a sign, was a symbol for this powerful judgment of God that came down upon the perfect Lamb who did take away the sin of the world. Beloved, there is no more critical question that you have or will ever have asked of you in your existence than this basic question. Are you a sinner saved by grace? Or are you a sinner who needs to be saved by grace? But beloved, for those who say, yes, by God's grace, I am a sinner. But I am a sinner saved. I am one who has been seeing that fire, understands God's wrath, understands His hatred of sin, and I know it because it's a hatred of my sin. I hate the way that I think. I hate the way that I speak words. Ugliness, just the tone of the words reflect a version of me that I despise. I hate this aspect. I hate this part of me. I hate this thing that is so ugly and twisted and broken that I would speak to the one that God said is my rib in such an ugly manner. I hate this thing that is within me. They would look at this beautiful child, this child for whom I prayed, this child for whom I longed, and would look at that child and be unjust, unkind. 
I hate this. When you see and are there, then beloved, look beyond the fire to what lays upon the fire. Look through the fire to see the sacrifice. Look through the sin and the brokenness. Look through your pain. Look through your disappointment in yourself. Look through to see Jesus. The one who is the Lamb of God. The one who is your perfect righteousness. The one in whom you have peace. The one in whom you have fellowship with God. The greatest longing of all humanity is what is yours and is in your hands. And we forget, just like the Israelites wandering through the wilderness. I mean, can you imagine? I would think I would spend 40 years, my entire life, just going, dude! That's amazing! Look at that! But they didn't, did they? Not only did they not spend 40 years going, that's amazing! But after a week or so of going, yeah, it's pretty interesting, then they said, we'd like to go back to Egypt now. They had better garlic. Egypt for me. We need it again. We need to be refreshed again. We need to be reminded again. Challenged again a beloved comforted again. That our Lord Jesus drank that cup, body shredded, blood spilled out on the ground, a horrible death, suffocating, mocking, crown of thorns, shoved down on his forehead, spit upon. That was what he did for you. Joyfully. Isn't that weird? For the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross. The joy of knowing that you and I would be purchased by him. 